Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Frank Close will join us to discuss the Infinity Puzzle. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, we're very fortunate today to be joined by Frank Close, who is a professor of theoretical physics at Oxford University and fellow and tutor in physics at Exeter College, Oxford. He's the winner of the Kelvin Medal for Public Understanding of Physics and the author of over 10 books. His most recent release, The Infinity Puzzle, Quantum Field Theory and the Hunt for an Orderly Universe, explores the topic for a general audience. And uh, Dr. Close, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hello, thanks for having me. Certainly our pleasure. And what are you talking about with regards to the Infinity Puzzle? Well, it's the story of some events that took place nearly half a century ago, which created the seed for the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC, the huge experiment that's currently taking place uh, in Geneva, whereby smashing pieces of atoms at each other, protons at very high speed, they're creating the conditions in the lab that the universe itself experienced about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. And according to these ideas, that was the epoch in the early moments uh, after creation when the structure of the universe, the stuff that makes atoms be, makes you and me ultimately, came to be. And the code word that many people will have heard is the Higgs boson, the search for the Higgs boson. Who is Higgs and what is it that he did that led to a $10 billion effectively uh, experiment to find the thing? So the story really is that what it was 50 years ago, Higgs and a group of many other scientists who came up with the ideas that have led after half a century of advance to this moment. And I called it the infinity puzzle because originally, uh, back uh, when the electromagnetic force was understood, just uh, around 1940s, the theory of that, the quantum theory of that, was called quantum electrodynamics. And it was fine as long as you didn't sort of push it too far. The moment you tried to do anything other than the simplest approximations, the answers came out to be infinity percent, which is nonsense. I mean, if you get infinity coming out of your answers, it means you haven't got a theory. It's as basic as that. Well, that was sorted out by uh, Feynman and others in 1947, for which they got the Nobel Prize. But that's only one of the forces of nature. The other force that's interested us is the weak force that changes the elements from one to another. It, is the thing that works at the center of the sun and the stars fusing the elements. And that resisted all attempts to get rid of the infinities there until a contemporary of mine in his graduate thesis around 1971 solved it. So the infinity puzzle was solved in 1971, and that moment, combined with the ideas of Higgs and others, really is what has led to this great progress in physics in the last decades, leading to the LHC experiments, which we hope will find the last pieces of the jigsaw. The, the idea was that it was possible to make beautiful theories of the forces of nature if the particles had no mass at all. 
which is fine as far as the particle of light, photon is concerned, that is massless, but pretty much everything else, electrons uh, that whirl around in atoms and the quarks that seed the atomic nucleus, they all have mass. And if it was not for mass, we wouldn't be here having the, the discussion. So the question was, where does mass come from? How can you get mass into the theory without destroying all the things we know to be true, like relativity and, and quantum mechanics. And that trick was discovered in 1964 by Peter Higgs and uh, five or six other people. Peter Higgs in particular drew attention to the fact that if nature itself plays this trick, it, it's all very well for a theorist to find some clever bits of mathematics which do wonderful things on a sheet of paper, but if nature doesn't read that set of equations itself, it's of no relevance for science. If you're a composer, you can compose any symphony, and if we think it's beautiful, that's wonderful. You can write beautiful equations, and if nature doesn't do it, bad luck. So the question is this, is that just a mathematical trick that these guys found, or is that really what nature is about? And if nature does play that game, then there must be this short-lived entity called the Higgs boson, a, a particle which has not yet been seen, very, very massive, and it's so massive that previously in experiments here on Earth it's been impossible to make it. The Large Hadron Collider was designed among its uh, aims was to have enough energy focused in the collisions that it would be possible to create the Higgs boson if the thing exists. And if it exists, it only lives for a fleeting moment. So you're looking for a needle in a haystack that's Thousands and thousands of particles pour out of these dramatic collisions, and only once in a while, if you're lucky, is a Higgs boson in there. So you've got to detect it by the entrails it leaves behind after it's decayed. So they're looking for the, the fossil footprints, the relics, if you like, of a transient Higgs boson. And hopefully, we'll find enough of these that eventually they'll be confident to say, aha, it exists, it has these properties, and so on and so forth. The problem is... We don't know, not just if nature plays the trick, but how it does it in detail, which makes it very difficult. And once we've found the thing, whatever its nature is, if it's there to be found, it'll all be obvious after the event. But at the moment, it's exciting because we don't really know quite what we're looking for. A needle in a haystack where you don't really know what the needle looks like. Yeah, so it's pretty easy, really, then, isn't it? <laughs> yes, you've got ideas. The theory tells you that when this particle decays, it should decay into certain types of particles with certain probabilities. So what the experiments are doing is setting up their detectors and computer algorithms to be sensitive to the particular signals that the theory says ought to be the signal for this object. And if the theory is right and if the experimentists are lucky, they will indeed be looking in the right direction so that occasionally when these little flashes from uh, Higgs boson decaying happen, they will pick them up. Until this point, as you mentioned, it had been almost impossible to really define the Higgs. The colliders we had up really weren't energetic enough to get what they think is the Higgs? Yes, the, the one thing we know about uh, the, the Higgs is that if it exists, it has to weigh in at least 100 times more massive than the hydrogen atom, uh, and maybe uh, two or 300 times uh, as massive as that. So uh, we, we don't know precisely where to look, but we know that it must be at least in that 100 and up. And previously, Fermilab uh, in Chicago, uh, that had the possibility, if nature was kind and the Higgs was at the lowest end of that range, and uh, it decayed in nice, convenient ways, 
it was possible that Fermilab might have actually managed to find it themselves before the LHC got started. That's not how it's turned out. The LHC has now been running for about a year, accumulating data, and it's a bit like tossing a coin. You, if you get a few heads in a row, maybe it's showing you the coin is loaded, or maybe it's just chance. If you get hundreds of heads in a row, you know it's telling you something about the coin. And it's a bit like that with these experiments. You repeat the experiment over and over and over and over, gradually accumulating data, accumulating um, coin tosses, if you like. And what you're hoping is that you start getting, uh, in certain regions, a run of heads which shows you that there is something definitely going on here. So it takes a long time to accumulate the data to be confident enough that it's like that. So in that sense, it's early days, though already they're able to eliminate some regions where the Higgs might be hiding. The question is whether the regions that have not eliminated yet are where it is lurking, or whether in another few months we'll have eliminated those as well. There are many scientists who wound up contributing. It's sort of an interesting story and varying ideas and the missed opportunities that eventually led to the development of the idea. I'm just wondering. Yes, what I wanted to do in this book was not so much to talk all about the physics and the Higgs boson and what it is, but much more about the scientists who over the decades have built these ideas and the nature of science and how it works. The the public often are presented with a winner's account where you get the impression that progress is a very logical procedure like working your way through the alphabet, A, B, C, D, right the way through to Z. And it isn't like that in practice. It tends to be much more jumpy, you know, A to Q and back to D and then back to A again because you've been going in the wrong direction, sideways, backwards, missed opportunities. That's the first part of it. It's very much a, a jumping around exercise. Uh, the second thing is that they also have the impression you know, that the people who win the Nobel Prizes, it's like a marathon race where some guy's in the front and eventually comes through the tape at the end, the winner. Whereas in reality, it's more like a relay race that a lot of people are involved in the early stages. And eventually somebody, often fortunately, just happens to be in the last lap carrying the baton for the team uh, who came over the line first. So that the nature of science uh, is really what the story is about. And I drew an analogy with um, science and, uh, and music by saying that uh, you know, if Beethoven hadn't written his Ninth Symphony, the chance that somebody else would have written the very same symphony one day and taken the credit for it, I mean, that just doesn't happen. But in the case of science, it's different, that it's as if nature has already written the symphony and we are trying to find out for ourselves what it consists of. So if you happen to come across, a, uh, you discover a few uh, stanzas of the symphony, and you don't go ahead and publish it for whatever reason. Maybe you weren't confident enough, or maybe you wanted to be totally sure before you went public with the thing. And then a few months later, somebody else publishes that very thing themselves. How do you react? You know, you've been scooped out of what may have been the one great discovery of your life. And how people react is, it varies, that scientists are people. Science is a pure ideal that scientists are humans with all foibles of humans. There's nothing different about scientists than any other group in society by and large. And how they react is very varied. And that was one of the stories that I wanted to bring out in the book, that uh, scientists are seeking fame and glory, many of them, uh, no less than people in other areas of life. And if you get beaten to something, how you react tells you a lot about the psychology. So it is really a, a human adventure, a human endeavor uh, with science and truth at the end of it. 
do you think somewhat more difficult, particularly in particle physics, where these projects involve several hundreds, thousands of people working on a project to actually become more known or prominent in a field? It is certainly a difficulty in, in particle physics today where the experimental teams uh, now involve you know, several thousand people. And one of the things that uh, occurred to me is, let us suppose that the Higgs is eventually found. And it is found because uh, some, if you are the student who fortunately happens to be in the laboratory uh, take, looking at all the data when the, the really clear-cut uh, pieces of data come through, it doesn't happen like this, it's over-dramatizing it, but at least one can imagine it, that you actually see the critical bits of data uh, which finally make the proof that the thing is there. Are you the person who should get the credit for this? Well, presumably not, because you just happen to be lucky in that sense. But where did that data come from? It came from a detector that had been built and designed by hundreds of people. It involved computer scientists creating the algorithms to enable the things going on in the heart of the detector to be visualized on the screen in front of you. It involved other people who decided this was the particular way to go and look in the haystack with the hope of finding the Higgs thing. Then there were the people who designed and built the machine, the Large Hadron Collider, in the first place. There's a vast number of people all around the world over a period of 20 years who have been involved in making this whole thing happen. And I think the analogy is probably here more like an iceberg, that what you actually see above the surface, the uh, Higgs and the people who came up with the idea in the first place, the, the star scientists who are there uh, doing the experiments and being seen on the media, or me talking about it, for example, whereas the reality is beneath the waterline, there's a vast amount of greater number of people and institutions who have been working for a vast amount of time to make the thing happen. It's a truly worldwide cooperative enterprise. How, at the end of that, do you decide which two or three people should get the, the great accolades? Certainly in the book, you, you recount stories of, of scientists, few such as uh, J.C. Ward and Ronald Shaw. Yes, there are certainly scientists who have leading work and, for whatever reason, uh, got bypassed. I mean, you mentioned uh, J.C. Ward and uh, Ron Shaw. Ron Shaw was a student of Abdus Salam, a man who himself did later win a Nobel Prize. And the fact that Salam won a Nobel Prize and his collaborator, Ward, who you mentioned, missed out. Uh, that has also been quite a core celebra in science. The problem is that a maximum of three people can share a Nobel at any one time. And in the case of Ward, there were four people involved. It was uh, Glashow, Weinberg, Salam, and Ward. Salam and Ward had collaborated pretty well throughout. Ward missed out. The reasons why he missed out I discuss uh, at some length, and it's not really a thing to just do on a quick uh, interview like this. Uh, Ron Shaw was interesting. He was a student of Salam. Back in 1953, Ron Shaw discovered for himself something that we now know as Yang and Mills theories. What they are doesn't matter, but the point is that Yang and Mills were two scientists who discovered the fundamental mathematical ideas that have underpinned pretty well everything that has driven the last half century in theoretical particle physics. They're called Yang-Mills theories. And Ron Shaw, a student of Salam's, discovered these himself and only published them in his thesis because he realized that 
given the state of knowledge in 1953, what he had discovered didn't quite fit the way the universe works. And so he thought, therefore, it was wrong, and he just left it for his thesis. Yang and Mills bravely, or with great intuition, however it worked out, went ahead and published, even though there were things about it that didn't fit. The things that didn't fit were that the equations wanted certain particles to have no mass, whereas in an experiment they do have mass. And later on, the trick of getting mass into those equations was found, and that is what Higgs, Goralnik, Hagen, Kibble, Braut, Anglaire, the, the people we keep hearing about today, that's the way that they solved the, the conundrum. But Shaw did not know that. He just left it in his thesis, and that was that. And uh, Yang Mills are the people that everybody has heard of. Ron Shaw, I interviewed him, very interesting person, very modest man. He says, actually, he said, uh, I'm really rather happy it didn't work out that, that I had my name attached to this, because I wouldn't have wanted to have spent the last 50 years having people telephoning me all the time, wanting to know the latest status of the experiments. I've been able to get on with my life. If only we could all feel like that and be happy people. Do you think this is particularly um, endemic to science academia in general just because of the somewhat hierarchical structure, the hoary traditions of the field that sometimes big ideas like this just can't come out? Oh, big ideas do come out from junior people. Uh, the people who discovered First of all, the solution to the infinity puzzle uh, in the case of the weak force, that came out in uh, the graduate thesis of Erhard Toft in Utrecht, and Toft and Veltman, his supervisor, they were working together. They shared the Nobel Prize for that. And the strong force, the force that grips quarks together in the heart of the proton and other nuclear particles, that we now know is described by a theory called quantum chromodynamics. And the essential discovery of how that theory works, which convinced everybody that this was the way to go, uh, that won a Nobel Prize for three people, two of whom, David Politzer and Frank Wilczek, were themselves graduate students. So actually, two of the forces of nature were, if you like, solved by three graduate students in their theses, the very first papers they wrote. So it shows, actually, that you know, uh, young, unknown people uh, can sometimes do wonderful things. It's the nature of what you find that's important, not who you are. Of course, it, the psychology is having the nerve to go ahead and publish when you are not 100% certain, because very rarely are you 100% certain. There's a certain point where you have to take the risk. Am I going to put my reputation on the line, or do I want more time to be sure? And it's that that is the great decision. And I suppose that if you are well-known, it may be easier to go public. On the other hand, you may have a bigger reputation to want to defend. It's a very complicated thing to assess. Doing science involves psychology, self-knowledge, uh, personality, no less than the skill of being able to manipulate equations. I think that w what comes across from the story, it's my own experience in half, well, not half a century, but you know, 40 years uh, of science. It's a period that I've lived through. I've seen the discoveries made and witnessed them. And it's a very exciting life to have. And it's a great privilege to be part of it, to actually discover how nature actually works. And so I hope that the excitement comes across. The fact that there's a certain level of knowledge that we have, let's say today, and then things are discovered, and then 10, 20 years from now, those things are in the textbooks and everybody is being taught them. So 
we all start off at school. We're taught things that previous generations have discovered. They're in the textbooks. They appear to be totally solid and beyond dispute. Then you spend 40, 50 years in science. You see discoveries made, and if you're lucky, you make them yourself, and they go into the textbooks for future generations. Those future generations will see them if you like, in the textbook, solid beyond dispute. But you who have lived through that period and have, and know the people who made the discoveries, you've seen the debates that went on before the discoveries really got uh, agreed upon to be absolutely solid, you always have that slight sense of wonder that you saw these things happen and doubt as to, is it really like that? Is it all totally sewn up? Uh, and being part of the discovery process is absolutely fascinating, and I don't think anybody who has lived through it could do other than agree by saying that being part of science, seeing discoveries made at the frontier, is one of the most exciting things you can have in life. The idea that for a moment you know something that nobody else has ever seen is quite a remarkable one. Well, the, uh, the new book is called The Infinity Puzzle, Quantum Theory, and the Hunt for an Orderly Universe. And Professor Close, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. And you were just listening to Frank Close discussing the, the Infinity Puzzle. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. Mama, take this badge off of me. I can't use it anymore It's getting dark, too dark to see I feel I'm knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door All right, well, it's time to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, what sort of particle would they be? So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they were a subatomic particle, what sort of particle would they be and why? Professor Close, you ready to play the game? Okay. All right. <laughs> Person number one, what sort of particle would he be? It's uh, uh, talent show host Simon Cowell. Simon Cowell? Oh, um, depends when I'm going to get sued for this. But hopefully one that's very short-lived. Blinks in and out of existence. Right. Highly unstable. <laughs> All right. Uh, number two, what sort of particle would he be? It's the uh, soccer great David Beckham. David Beckham. Gosh, highly exotic. Whether he's strange or beauty depends upon who you ask, but I make no comment. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, number three, the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. Oh, gosh. Ah. Now, one that's evolving. P particles decay and produce further particles, which can bump into things and produce further particles. So maybe Dawkins uh, and evolution is a metaphor for the nature of particle collisions and the vast amount of noise that comes out of them, which eventually you hope to find the signal in. Sounds like an apt description. Number four, it's uh, Sharon Osborne. Sharon Osborne. Goodness gracious. We're running out of particles. <laughs> 
Sharon Osborne. Yes. You should probably ask my kids that one. I'll take a pass on that. Okay, fair enough. Uh, finally, number five, it's uh, your Prime Minister, David Cameron. David Cameron. Gosh, I've, I've written down here possible ideas of particles, and they so far all uh, tipped up just right. But let's think. Well, we, well, he's a politician, and the quarks, there's the up quark and the down quark. So I suppose he's currently symbolizing them. At the moment, he happens to be up, but probably fairly shortly he'll be down. <laughs> like most politicians flip-flopping uh, pretty regularly, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Professor Close, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing the game and, again, talking about uh, your great book, The Infinity Puzzle, Quantum Field Theory, and the Hunt for an Orderly Universe. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.